Turn your Bibles to John chapter 12. We continue our study of the Gospel of John. And today I want to talk about the day that Jesus reigned, R-E-I-G-N-E-D, on their parade. People love parades, don't they? I mean, we have Christmas parades, we have New Year's Day's parades, we have parades to celebrate when our teams win championships. We celebrated World War II, our victory there, and uh, we just have parades for about everything you could imagine. And Jesus, in our text today, is at a parade. It is the parade for the nation of Israel. They were celebrating the festival of lights, or Hanukkah, and they were having this incredible parade, excuse me, I mean the Passover, and they were having this incredible parade. And uh, we have a term, expression, don't rain on my parade. And we use that. It's, you know, don't, don't, don't be a Debbie Downer. You know, there's always people that are negative, aren't there? that are negative and critical and censorious. And anything that you might say can be construed as, or twisted into something negative. I mean, some people are so negative. If you gave them a million dollars in cash, they would only complain about heavy the, how heavy the bag is. I mean, some people just find anything to complain about. And they complain and complain and complain. But today I want to talk about how Jesus reigned on their parade. And two things, I want to show the setting historically, and then I want to also look at the real triumphal entry. Because this is called the triumphal entry, but really it's a tearful entry. Would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? John chapter 12, starting in verse number 12. The next day, this is after the feast with Lazarus and the anointing. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they heard that Jesus was coming. They said, you know what? I want to go see this miracle worker. Took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's coat. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had, been done, and they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, bore witness. In other words, those who were there for that day were telling others, yeah, this is the guy. This is the one. He's the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that Jesus would reign in our hearts, in our lives, 
that he would be the boss, the king, the Messiah, and that we would honor him as such. And Father, we thank you that your word is true and that can be trusted. And Father, today we just give this service over to you and we ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here that needs to know Christ as Lord and Savior, they would give their hearts to him during this hour. In Jesus' name I pray that. Amen. You may be seated. Now, during the normal time of Jerusalem, there were about 50,000 residents that would be there in the city of Jerusalem. But the population would explode during this time of the Passover. And uh, the Jewish historian Josephus writes these words. He talks about Cestius, the Roman governor of Palestine, attempting to impress Emperor Nero that the Passover was an important feast for the Jews. And to do this, he ordered the high priest to count the actual number of lambs that were sacrificed at Passover in the year of A.D. 65. Cestius quoted the high priest as giving him a figure of 256,500 lambs that were offered during this sacrifice. Wow. One animal per family. Can you imagine how the town swelled, the city swelled with the population. And they're there saying, Hosanna, son of David, king of Israel, save us. I don't know if you ever heard of the town Round Top, Texas. Round Top, Texas is an interesting place. And uh, my wife and I went there this past summer. Normally there are a population of 90 people in Round Top, Texas. But during their events where they sell antiques and their wares, the population explodes to over 100,000 people. It is absolutely staggering to the imagination. We went through that town when there was nobody there and you could do anything. You could walk across the street. You could lie down in the street and not get ran over. But... It explodes, and that's how it was in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. The population would just explode. So I want to give you a preview of what happened on Palm Sunday, and then I want to also uh, give you a preview of what's coming. The king is coming again. And I want to give you a preview of that as well. There are three, three major things I want to point out in our text today. The first is the shallowness the shallow praise at the parade. I mean, it was just shallow praise. And Jesus intentionally rode a donkey into the parade because normally what you would do, you would ride a stallion. But Jesus rode a donkey. In Zechariah 9, 9, we're told these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just. And having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt and the foal of a donkey. So the prophecy was prophesied that their Messiah would come not on a white stallion as a victorious warrior, but he would come as a lowly servant 
offering the precious gift of salvation to all who would receive. And imagine the thousands of people who were at the parade route, and they were yelling these words in verse 13. They were crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. But their praise was empty. Their, 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 their shouts of praise and, and honor and glory were simply empty. Now what does Hosanna mean? It means save us, rescue us. But they weren't saying save our soul from eternal separation from God. What they were saying is save us from those mean Romans. Save us. Set yourself up as king. Reign over us. Rule us. Take our country back. They wanted Jesus to take this earthly throne and and set up and reign over them. Now, there had not been a true king over Jerusalem for over 500 years. And it had been almost 200 years since Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, had liberated... Israel and cleansed and consecrated the temple. And they, when Judas the hammer rode into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple because those ugly Greeks had sacrificed a pig upon their altar, they rode, he rode into town, not on a donkey, but a white stallion, as a conquering king, returning for the victorious praise that would be offered to him from those in Jerusalem that day. Now, think about it. What did the people do? Well, verse 13 tells us what the people did. (laughs) They took out palm branches, same thing they did with Judas, looking for a king, and they went out to meet him, and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then they added this phrase, the king of Israel. (laughs) And they cried that out, with Judas Maccabees as well. But unfortunately, Judas Maccabees was not the Messiah. And three years later, he would be killed in battle. And he would be buried in a grave. And he would stay dead. And you can go to the Maccabees graves in central Israel today, and you can still see they honor him for cleansing the temple and starting the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah, which whichever name you want to know or or share. But this shallow praise, Jesus knew it was shallow. Those who were saying crown him before the end of the week would be saying crucify him. Those who were saying hail him before the end of the week would be saying nail him. Jesus knew that their praise wasn't authentic. You see, what they were looking for was a radical revolutionary to come and set up a kingdom and Jesus was not some radical revolutionary uh, that lays down their life for themselves he was a redeemer who had come to lay down his life so others may live Jesus knew how fickle the crowds could be and we know as well There's a couple of lessons I want to share with you. The first life lesson I want to share today is this. Jesus knows when your praise is empty. He knows when you're just giving him lip service. The people in the parade route that day, they weren't authentic. They weren't really worshiping Jesus. They were asking something from themselves. Their words were empty and void. 
They weren't sincere in their hosannas. And Jesus highlighted their empty worship in Matthew's gospel in chapter 15 when he said these words, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Listen, have you ever sat in your pew or stood to your feet and you've been mouthing the words to a song but your mind's a million miles away? Guilty. I've done it, haven't you? Sure you have. You're thinking, what's for dinner? Or where are we going to go? Or is that roast burning? Or uh, what's, what's next? And, and what we should be focusing on is Him. Sing my favorite song today, How Great Thou Art. Love that song. That song will be sang at my funeral. Hopefully it's not soon. But we, we aren't to give God empty praise. He is the only one worthy of honor and worship and praise. And we should cry out to Him. We should focus upon Him. We have to be careful that we don't give Him shallow, empty praise. Jesus told the woman at the well these words in John 4, 23. We're to focus on Jesus. The hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father, how? In spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to worship Him in truth and in spirit. So don't give Him shallow praise. When you come on Sunday morning or any other time, or when you go to Him in, in prayer and to praise Him, be sure you're just not mouthing words. Be sure that it's real praise, that it's not shallow and it's not empty. The second thing I want you to see today in our text is this, the compassionate tears at the parade. I mean, everyone's, everyone's in a, a joyous mood except one person. And in your text in Scripture, it may say like mine, it might be, this, this isn't inspired, the triumphal entry, that was the words that a man had put down there. This was actually a tearful entry as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. But I want to tell you something. There's coming a time when there will be the triumphal entry. But it wasn't this time. It will be at the second coming of Christ when he comes to set up his throne for good and for real. Listen. In Luke's gospel in chapter 19, he's ta talking about the triumphal entry. He adds this. Now he, that's Jesus, as he drew near, he saw the city, and you know what he did? He wept over it. In John chapter 11, we remember at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept, remember? But it was, it's, you've done this. When just a, I mean, your heart's been broken, but just a, a tear goes down your cheek. But I bet you've also done this. The word that is used here when Jesus is weeping here is kaleo. And kaleo isn't a tear that's streaming down your cheek. It's that deep welling from loss where you cry out and everyone can hear you weeping. 
because your heart is so broken, you can't contain the emotion any longer. And everyone's crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and Jesus is weeping, loudly, sobbing. That's when your chest rises and falls. And that's what Jesus was doing that day. He was so brokenhearted. And, and the reason he was so brokenhearted is because they had not recognized him as the true king. He had given his life and yet, or would give his life, and yet they were just going through the motions. You know, there are many Old Testament prophecies that prophesy about the Messiah, but I think the most amazing one is found in Daniel chapter 9. Cyrus was king over Babylon, and Nehemiah and Ezra went back to rebuild the wall and the temple. And Daniel predicted when that was given, when Cyrus gave that order for the Jews to return to Jerusalem, he said it will be 483 years will pass and then your Messiah will come. And guess what? This exact day in our text is the day that Daniel predicted. 483 years later. And Jesus shows up. And guess what they do? Give him empty praise and they ignore him. And they crucify him within the week. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I wonder, I wonder if we weep over the lost anymore. If we even really believe that there's a real literal hell and that people go there that don't know Christ. I wonder. Don't you? Well, Let me, let me just go ahead and give you first the death lesson, okay? The death lesson is this. Those who refuse to recognize Jesus as Lord, they face judgment. It's real. It's, it's literal. They face judgment. I mean, Jesus predicted that the enemy would come, surround Jerusalem, that they would absolutely decimate it, and they wouldn't even leave one stone of the temple lying upon another stone. And in A.D. 70, God executed that judgment on the city, and they burned, the Romans burned it to the ground, and not one stone was laying upon another. And the reason is because the gold melted between the stones, and they took large bars and pried them apart to retrieve the gold. And they rolled the stones down the hill. They rejected their Messiah, but here's the issue. Judgment's also coming for people who reject the Messiah today. Real judgment. Literal judgment. You say, oh, John, don't talk about that. That's just so horrible. It's a reality. And we need the reality that judgment is coming. And without Jesus Christ, we can't be protected. But let me give you not just the death lesson, but let me give you the life lesson. When we know Jesus is God, he offers us personal peace. You know what everybody in the world wants is peace, right? Jesus said, if you had only known what would give you peace, 
And I think if people would only know what would give them peace, the Prince of Peace had come into the city and they didn't even recognize him as God. And listen, listen. He offered them peace. He offered them protection. But they refused. Luke's gospel says in chapter 13, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets in stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Now a chicken or a mother hen is extremely protective of her chicks. I read this story of a Canadian farmer who had a hen house, and it caught on fire. Some of the hens escaped, but when he was able to extinguish it fairly quickly, but after he did, he went in, and there was a a dead hen close to her nest. And he went over, and he picked up the dead hen who's whose wings were scorched from the fire. And underneath came out six little chicks. You know what she had done? She had given her life for her chicks. And you know what Jesus did? He went to the cross and he gave up his life that we might be sheltered by his protection when divine judgment comes, that we wouldn't be touched by the fires, that we wouldn't be scorched, that we would be protected. And that's the opportunity he gives us. But we have to call upon his name because Jesus died in the process of saving us. Judgment for sin is going to be given out, but you don't have to experience it because he offers peace and protection. Aren't you glad? Amen. 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 Thirdly and lastly, the evil plans at the parade. You see, they had some plans for Jesus. They had recognized he was too dangerous to live. They didn't want to take him during the Passover, but guess what? Jesus will force their hand to take him during the Passover. And there's another amazing prophecy. It's given out. It, 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 it was a prediction, but it was also a prophecy. And uh, verse 19 says these words. They said among themselves, these are the leaders, religious leaders. You see, basically we have accomplished nothing by all that we've done, by our attempts to thwart his movement, by our confrontations with him, by our questioning of him, we've done nothing. Look. As they looked around at all the crowds, remember 256,500 lambs were slain in one year. They looked around at, at thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people and they said, look, the whole world's gone after him. We've got to do something about this guy. And the next Sunday, before the next Sunday would come, Judas would have betrayed Jesus. His disciples would have abandoned him. Three mock trials, and they would crucify him. They would take his lifeless body off of the cross, place it in a tomb, roll a three and a half ton stone against the opening of that cave, that tomb, and then the Pharisees would dust their hands off and say, there, that takes care of him. Not quite. 
not quite. It's not over yet. Jesus is not done. Let me give you the life lesson. In spite of intense opposition, the world is going after Jesus. I mean, that complaint that was made by the Pharisees that day, that prophecy that was made by the Pharisees that day is coming true. I mean, today, the world has gone after Jesus. I mean, what started as a few hundred followers in an upper room turned into 3,000, and then more were added, and then multitudes were added, and then 5,000 were added, and the church continued to grow and grow and grow until they were pushed out of Jerusalem. They went to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And right now, we're not familiar with it because America is not in revival. But what started as a few hundred followers of Jesus, scholars and historians estimate that there are over three billion followers of Jesus worldwide. In 1900, in the continent of Africa, there were seven million Christians. Today, there are over 700 million Christians in Africa. And you go south of us, Brazil, Peru, other nations, Christianity is exploding. And lives are being changed. And you know why? Because they realize there's a king here. The same thing the disciples realized, that they became apostles and the early followers of Jesus. And they only knew there was a new king on the scene. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6 and 7, Paul and Silas were preaching. And when they did not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. When it says brethren, that's followers of Christ. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Paul and Silas, they've turned the world upside down with this Jesus thing. Jason's harbored them. In other words, he allowed them to stay with him. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. <laughs> now, when you think about that, their message was the same message as ours today. There is a king on the scene. His name is Jesus. And you should surrender your life to him. Because your only hope is through him. And you must give your loyalty to him and him alone. Now, he came riding in on a donkey in this tearful entry, raining upon their parade. But there is coming a time that he will not be, not be coming riding upon a donkey. In Zechariah 14. And in that day, the second coming, his feet will stand on, stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all of the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name is one. 
He will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus wept that day because they did not recognize him as their rightful king. More than a century ago, there were two explorers off the coast of Scotland. And they wanted to explore by Inverness, Scotland. So they came ashore. And they began exploring. They got lost before they could get back to their ship. And they decided to try to find a cottage to spend the night in. So they knocked on the door of the first cottage. And a man opened the door and they said, Could we stay the night? And would you give us some food? We'll pay you. The man was suspicious and he turned them away. They went to the next cottage and they knocked on the door. They said, We're lost. Could we stay the night? We're willing to pay you, and maybe you could feed us some food. The man said, please enter my house. You won't pay me anything. And they spent the night, and they had their bellies full. The next morning when they arose, the owner of the cottage recognized one of the men. He was the Prince of Wales, who had become King Edward V. Imagine the shame of the first cottage owner that turned the future king away. What shame he must have felt. But you know there's a greater shame than that. And it's this. The king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, has come and he's offered to come into your home. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open up, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Jesus stands at every heart's door and he desires to be let in and to protect you. Would you let him? With every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you that Jesus revealed himself to us and he's given us hope. He offers us peace. He gives us the promise of salvation and he is our only provision. Lord, I pray that we would hail him as king and crown him as Lord of our lives. And today, if someone here has not done that, my prayer is they would. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?